Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast whose strike rate is always overrated. I'm your host, Benny, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mayank. Hey, everyone. Nish. Hello, everyone. And Himanish. Hi, everyone. And this week, we will be featuring the second part of our conversation with cricket analyst Dan Weston. You can hear Dan's thoughts on the much maligned anchor role in T20s, the future of analytics in cricket, and his advice for budding analysts. But first, let's take a quick look at the IPL. Uh, two weeks in, surprise, surprise, RCB are leading the table. They're undefeated. I know it's only three games, but it's it's still shocking. Uh, Mumbai Indians are doing what they do best, just pushing over the opposition or, you know, sneaking in those wins. And uh, Kings, uh, well, they're not Kings 11 anymore, but Punjab Kings and Sunrises Hyderabad seem to be facing familiar struggles yet again. Uh, we thought we would talk about uh, two specific issues this week. So the first one uh, was the much-talked-about incident uh, between or involving Sanju Sampson and Chris Morris in the in the game between Rajasthan Royals and the Punjab Kings, with uh, you know the Royals needing five runs of two balls. Sanju Sampson uh, did not or turned down a single when an easy single which essentially made the game from five needed of two to five needed of one. Uh, and obviously it didn't end in the Royals' favor. They ended up, you know, the next ball, Sanjay Sampson hold out and they lost the game. And everyone has a lot of thoughts on it. Um, I, I know in this podcast itself, there were differing opinions. I thought it was probably not the best uh, idea uh, for Sanjay Sampson to tur- turn it down. Uh, but since then, I've come across so many articles people have shared their thoughts on it and i know mine has written an entire piece on it so i wanted to get mine's thoughts first and we'll go from there uh so mine you were on the side of sanjay samson and you thought that was uh, a smart decision yep um yeah so in my mind firstly obviously sanjay samson at that point had played 60 plus deliveries um he was you know batting very well and i think he started relatively slowly reaching his 15 30-odd balls, I think it was 33 balls. 
But after that, he was batting very well, striking beautifully. In fact, the ball that he turned down the single, um, the ball before that, he's hit for a six. So I, I personally thought there were pretty good odds of uh, him keeping strike and taking that chance. Um, uh, and I know there was a lot of outrage, especially after Morris finished the second game successfully um, right. with people talking about that. But the fact of the matter is at that point, game one, 19.4, Morris had faced four balls and he wasn't, you know, he hadn't found any boundaries um, and he had played, I'm sure they have obviously had some practice games or nets or whatever, but uh, he hadn't played an actual game where he faced more than 10 balls in two over two months. Um, and the other aspect is uh, a lot of people said, you know, there's a chance of a tie uh, if you do end up being one of four and, and, you know, somehow managed to run three, but Let's be honest, that Mumbai ground was is really short. The boundaries are really short. So running a three is virtually impossible there. So I think the decision was asking Morris to hit a boundary or Samson taking it on. And I think, I think it was a fair call. I, I generally think it was a probably a 60-40 in, in favor of Samson. And obviously it didn't come off, but uh, that's okay. I, I, I think Sanju realized it himself where he said, you know, if I have to do that, hundred more times, I would still not take that single. And I think he's spot on there. Nish, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, the, 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 I kind of have to piggyback off Mank's um, opinion here that Sanju Samson was obviously the more established and he was, like, there's no evidence to suggest that he can't put the ball away when there was enough evidence to suggest that Morris was not able to connect, right? And also while focusing on the batsman, I want to give full credit to Arshdeep as well. He bowled to the field and, you know, he was taking the ball kind of like, you know, I think he was bowling his off cutters away from the right handers for the heavy offside field. So credit to the bowler for holding his head high, in a pressure, pressure, pressure cooker situation. And overall, I think, yeah, it was a good game. Sunny Samson did um, bat well, but this problem has been, you know, recurring for Rajasthan where they come close and fall short. But, you know, I, sh- I, I don't think we should be too disappointed with that overall effort. In particular, in this instant, I think, uh, you know, these things are very 50-50 and it can go either way. But I think the right decisions were made regardless of the output that went for Rajasthan. Manish? I think to add there, I think uh, Mayank and Nish have covered everything I wanted to say. And like he said, uh, these decisions are always 50-50. So... Had he hit the six, then you would have been saying, okay, what a good decision. Now he didn't hit the six. Now people are saying, what if Morris would have been on strike? It's always a calculation, right? And going by what was happening on the pitch, I think it was a good uh, choice to not give Morris a strike because Samson was in form, he was hitting and so on. So yeah, I, I think there's too much noise about this sort of decision, which we don't see often in cricket. We should be seeing more of it. So I guess I'm the only one who thought that was a terrible <laughs> decision. Well, I have to admit, though, my thoughts and opinions have evolved since then, you know, based on all, you know, what I read and even just Sanju Sam- uh, Samson, like when he shared his thought process, it, it, it does make a lot more sense now. Uh, I think in that moment, what at least what I think for me, what I just felt he, I know he has played a few games for India, but in my mind, somehow I, I saw Chris Morris as a more experienced hitter and he's not like a tail ender. So in my mind, I was like, why would you not just take the single? There's a good chance Chris Morris could hit that ball for four or six. Um, but yes, in, in the bigger context, the way Samson, you know, the form that he's in, I think most times you would you would back him to hit that shot. So, I mean, yeah, I guess now looking back, I, I guess it, you know, that was a, a good decision or at least it was a smart decision at that time. 
even if the outcome wasn't what they would have wanted, I think it was a good idea. Uh, and just based on what he said since then, and he wrote an article and like Mike, you said, like he, he mentioned, like, you know, if we play that game a hundred times again, I would still not take that single. And that to me is actually very impressive because, you know, he reminds me of Ashwin, you know, both of them very strong convictions and it doesn't matter the outside noise. If they believe, if they're fully convicted that this was the right call to make, I'm going to stick to it. And it doesn't matter what I hear from outside. So apart from his batting, uh, I'm just like impressed by that attitude and that character. So uh, yeah, very impressive. Yeah, quickly, I just want to, you know, while appreciating Arshdeep's, Arshdeep's final over, I also want to make a quick point about Meredith's uh, penultimate over, which went only for eight runs, considering the, you know, the talking other bowlers and he himself received prior to that spell. So yeah, it was a good comeback by Punjab. Shows that it doesn't really matter how crazy you get talked. You can go for 50 runs in three overs. You can come and still concede eight runs in the final over of your spell, quote unquote, and then still be on the winning side. So some right. threat to Meredith there as well. Yeah. Well, from a rampaging batsman, let's switch to a couple of players who they're not in terrible form. They're they're doing decently. They're scoring their runs. But like we have talked about with Dan, and we'll hear more of it in this episode as well later on. But strike rates, it's it's T20 is essentially a game of who is scoring runs, who's quicker at scoring these runs. And two play two of the teams who are struggling right now. Uh, Punjab Kings and Sunrisers Hyderabad. Both of them have a batsman in their team where fans are just frustrated with. So we have Kale Rahul, who earlier today um, in the game against Delhi Capitals, you know, when you look at the team's uh, score, 194, you're like, okay, it's pretty good, you know. But then you look at his knock and his strike rate, you know, after scoring 61 of 50 balls, you know, so just over or under 120. And this is not the first time and we've heard people have talked about this a lot uh, and his own attitude towards strike rate, that famous or infamous remark that strike rates are overrated, but it's causing problems for his team. And same thing with Sunrisers Hyderabad, you know, their, their batting struggles are nothing new, but again, I think very emblematic of that is Manish Pandey who, you know, who, who just seems to go along at a relaxed pace and then tries to hit out at the end when everything's pretty much done and dusted. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on these two batsmen, just their approach. And, you know, if you agree that it is really affecting their team, or do you think it, it just needs a different, you know, other players within the team need to step up r- rather than these two players themselves? Uh, we'll go with you, Himanish. See, I don't know what Rahul thinks or what the think tank thinks at uh, Punjab Kings, but there seems to be this idea that, you know, staying at the crease is correlated with batting better, which is a fair idea in red ball cricket. Uh, That's how batting works. But I don't think it translates because if you are set, then you could be hitting better. But will you hit better or will you not get out is an open question, right? And this is what happens, like it happened today. So Rahul, I think, had a lot of dot balls in his first 30, 40 balls. And then he tried to hit and he got out. Now, the idea seems to be that you sort of make up for those lost balls later. But the balls that you've conceded to the bowler are gone. Like you can't make up for them. You right. all, you know, your your uh, numbers have to add up. So you can't make up for them. You've already given them away. So I don't know what the thinking is. Like 61 or 51 on that pitch is the bizarre sort of innings. And I don't know if he thinks he can sort of launch because he's set. I don't know if he bats that way and he thinks of that that way. But yeah, 
it really uh, harms your team and it doesn't come off like it didn't today what about you nish yeah on totally agree, agree with him and ishtar this is a very high risk strategy with you know minimal to medium returns right so it's not really especially when it backfires like this you're putting your team in jeopardy with the low scoring obviously and then you have like people like you have power hitters like shahrukh khan who came later and you know again this is further hitting the nail in the coffin in this strategy right it's you need to go, i mean there's no you'd rather lose four wickets and go at 10 and over than have wickets in hand and go at like eight or seven and a half and over that i think it's a little outdated strategy and teams have to be a little uh on their toes you know in terms of like think tank re- revise quickly and not just have the situation play out you know so be more agile that's that's one thing that i would take away from this for them i guess but overall it was a very disappointing innings and despite the due like uh mike mentioned in our whatsapp group i think uh punjab were at least 30 runs short mike yeah and i think um, i mean to add to what uh, both of them said it's it's one aspect of you know the pitch not being you know good to bat on so that's where manish pandey's case comes in where the chennai pitch has not necessarily been you know batting friendly it's not been easy to bat on the balls not coming on spinners have had a good time so i i still somewhat understand a player struggling in that sort of situation um but it's understood when you see them making an effort in the sense that they're trying to go for shots they're not connecting and that's okay like that happens everybody has a bad day um but for manish pandey we've seen repetitive days where he's gone at run a ball batted 5 6 7 more overs and uh, you know just not covered up for it um and it's not even that he's not covered up for it again it's not about the result it's about what he was trying he was not necessarily trying for any of the big shots which basically meant that a chase of 150 odd which uh, i think against uh, um against in the first game that they lost they were trying to uh, against rcb they were trying to go at 8 and over overall um or sorry seven and a half over overall and then he's going at six and over the rest of the team has to go eight and a half that's not an easy thing especially after the ball is a little older um so that's definitely not excusable i if i was in the srh management i would be telling manish pandey he has a game maybe two games at max uh before you know he's being benched for somebody like virat singh i know he's only got a game but the numbers that he has in syed mustaq ali the numbers he has in domestic in general make me a lot more comfortable with that rather than this approach of manish pandey just pl- playing along without actually being able to convert um so i think that's my thought on manish pandey kl rahul was i think he was inexcusable because it's not even the chennai pitch it's a pitch where they managed to defend 221 by four runs so it's you know it's not rocket science that you need a big total um and i don't think holding the links together and all of that makes sense if you have two batsmen you know let's say if rcb has um just you know let's kohli uh, tries to hold the innings because they are basically relying on maxwell and uh, ab to do all the damage it's not the best strategy but maybe they don't have any hitters so that's why they're trying it that's not really the case with punjab right from mayank to gale to you know to the lower end deepak hooda sharukh khan they have a lot of good strikers a uh, lot of good batsmen so i mean i don't necessarily see the point of even trying to just trudge along and uh, again i think it was the intent that was you know uh, the famous word that virat kohli loves using the intent that was lacking um which annoyed me more than the result because sure you can have a bad day but it didn't feel like he was even trying 
and he had 23 runs in in the, of 24 balls in the power play which i i don't think you can excuse that on any pitch forget chennai or mumbai but it's it's a crime on in mumbai for sure and you know slightly related to it and same game you know the following innings shikhar dhawan scored a brilliant 92 i think and that came at a good pace and i saw some tweets saying that that one should be about rahul in the pecking order when it comes to the t20 internationals uh do any of you have any thoughts on that when we played t20 internationals before uh, rahul has done very very well and he's shown why he's our best t20 opener but i don't know what's got into him maybe he's just batting like that maybe it's a loss of form in terms of hitting but currently yeah currently i would agree that rahul isn't up there yet someone like dhawan should be higher than him but you can see why they play rahul because in the previous t20s we played i think uh, 2020 we played five t20s against new zealand and rahul did very well in those so you kind of see why they play him but i don't know what's gone into him and uh, what's happened to his form so let's see but dhawan should definitely be in the conversation even above rohit what seems to happen i think is that you tend to sort of uh, cross the formats and because right. rohit is someone who's a legend and he has those double centuries and he can hit a lot of runs in odis you tend to think that he can't be dropped from t20 right. but i think it's time for them to look past him because rohit is again someone who begins slowly and there might not be place for that so someone like shikhar dhawan someone like ishan kishan uh should be up there instead of rahul or rohit i also wonder if it's due to the teams that they play for you know in the ipl rahul considers you know he is the captain and he, he looks around and he probably sees inexperienced batsmen coming down the order and he thinks he needs to be more responsible whereas i think in the indian side he sees well there are a bunch of hitters to follow so maybe i can play more freely Yeah I mean I I think Himanesh really made a good point there because I don't think a lot of people have thought about dropping uh, Rohit and obviously like his record with the Mumbai Indians like Mumbai Indians record is great but he himself has not necessarily you know uh, set the stage on fire especially when it comes to T20 internationals Rahul on the other hand I was just looking through quickly in year 2020 he had 11 innings 450s strike rates of strike rate of 141 uh, that's that those are really really good numbers so i can see why they prefer rahul in t20 over uh, dhawan but dhawan has been very very quickly improving because i think 2 years ago his strike rate after the power play was low he's worked on that i think ricky ponting had made a comment last year and it's clear that he's worked on it and he's you know going all out aggressive and the thing is that it's not that he's just all out aggressive with fewer results his consistency is fairly the same uh, pretty much the same so i think it's definitely worth considering rahul and dhawan opening with uh, benching rohit all right well we'll leave it there uh, to our listeners as a reminder we want to hear from you so if you have any thoughts you would like to share about the ongoing ipl act, uh, action do leave us a message at anchor.fm/lastwicket and we might just feature your message on the next episode nish do you have any additional thoughts Yeah, this is kind of like staying with T20, but outside of uh, the IPL, I just want to shout, give a shout out to Babar Azam for his amazing innings um, of 122. And now comes the controversial, controversial part of my uh, comments. I think oh, great. Here we it's go. high time Kohli should take advice from Babar Azam. <laughs> just leaving it out there. We're we're going to cut this out so that we don't get any abuses in our <laughs> Twitter mentions. <laughs> anyway, here is part two of our conversation with Dan Weston. Thank you.
we've yeah. got to talk about anchors right because anchors yeah. is a very hot debate nowadays in t20 <laughs> cricket so like the concept of an anchor seems to me like it is holding one end up so the other end can go hard or conserving wickets so that you can blast off at the end mm-hmm. but i don't see a causal link between these things because there's no guarantee that you can blast off at the end right if you're mm-hmm. settled so now i try to quantify this right so last season i tried to find virat kohli's runs above average over the season so over each season if you sum it over the season his ra values are negative most of the time so yeah. overall he's not making up for his slow starts mm-hmm. so this is a very hot topic so your views on this right because yeah. i don't think we should have anchors but yeah that's a very extreme sort of view on t20 batting yeah i broadly agree with you actually i i i on a general basis i'm i i'm firmly in that camp as well the thing with kohli we we talked about like expected runs and stuff like that earlier in raa that's a difficult thing because we don't know the effect that his innings has had on the other batsmen so and i think it's that very hard to quantify that as well yeah, yeah. very yeah. and that's i think the big flaw with RIA, raa is the fact that we don't know whether his innings right. cost the team runs in terms of the other batsmen's performance or or he's actually been a facilitator by holding an end up which has allowed everyone to tee off and i think maybe you could say that it may be the last match uh, between india and england in the t20 series that he was that facilitator and that he batted through and allowed everyone to tee off and that might not necessarily have been reflected mm. in the raa so that's that's tricky but i broadly agree with you and i think that extends to that point that i was saying about having the extra batting depth but not compromising on the bowling quality in terms of bowlers upskilling in that area because that that would end up being a situation where you wouldn't need an anchor because you've got a bowling attack who's good can consistently concede 16% or lower boundaries and then and then you've got hitter 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 and you can consistently score more than 16% of boundaries and when the boundary percentage count wins you 80 to 85% of matches depending on the shot so um that that's that's the real key but at the moment i think that certainly i would say that one anchor is more than enough on a general basis unless you're you have such a good bowling attack you know like a a sunrisers hyderabad who who you maybe you look at their their bowling group now maybe the fifth bowl is a bit of a question mark but they've got 14 to 16 you would say probably bank rovers a lot of the time from 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 their four main bowlers and um in that case you know they're often defending or chasing 150 160 type totals and then you probably can have two anchors because you've got that better bowling group. So even though we're talking about a batting decision I think it's there's a strong relationship with the bowling group as well in terms of that anchor anchor strategy. So England for example at the moment T20s they have a very in my opinion a very poor bowling group. So they cannot afford to have any anchors at all if they're good, if if they're completely set on the current bowlers in their squad they cannot have a single anchor and this is what I'm talking a bit about Dawid Malan because I don't think when I when I talk about Dawid Malan I think I don't I don't think he should play for England it's not necessarily that I think he's a bad player and I think that this really has to be clarified because you can be a good player but not a good player for a specific team if that makes sense right. so for example we look at him with with punjab kings this year right we know with malan he likes to take time to get set that i think that's a very clear dynamic i think most people would agree that that's the case but punjab kings have also got kl rahul and chris gale who also like to take time to get set as well and uh, that's why i'm saying that that malan probably isn't the ro- that's not the right team for malan and 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 i would be surprised if he had a major impact in the tournament on that basis and and we talk about you know the 
the Coley types, the Milan types, who like to maybe they like they like to be like twenty five off twenty two to get things going. And the major problem is when they get out <laughs> after twenty two yeah. balls or twenty five balls yeah. or something like that. And they haven't had that opportunity to accelerate because if you're chasing 180 and someone does that, then the strike rate that the other batsmen need is like 170. So you're putting so much pressure on your teammates to to hit high strike rates because of your innings and and the implications are that massive. And I think there's a pretty fair argument to suggest that actually it's a a lot of people would say it's a lower risk strategy, but I actually think there's a fair argument to say it's a higher risk strategy going, going slow to start with and then looking to catch up. And then there's probably arguments you could say that it's also selfish and a bit stat stat padding as well. Um, Now, when I, when I said this about Coley's approach uh, on a podcast, I actually got quite a bit of abuse in the comment section because they said, well, Coley doesn't, Coley doesn't get out after 25 balls or whatever it is. But actually today he did. So he got 29 and He balls. does. He does. Yeah, That's yeah, what the RA yeah. calculation showed that, you know, overall, yeah. if you sum it up, he does not make up for those starts. He does yeah. not go on, you know, frequently enough to make up for them, which is, which is a pitfall of this uh, method, right? Definitely. And, and also the upside has got to be considered as well. So actually, I think there's a bit of a difference between, say, Coley and a Steve Smith. In, as an anchor, because yeah, they're broadly similar in their middle over out perhaps, but Coley has that ridiculous acceleration and the, de- the death overs, one of the best death hitters around in terms of the strike rate in the last four overs. Away. But Smith doesn't have that peak strike rate that Coley does have. So the, the Smith approach, I think, is worse than the Coley approach because Coley's got the upside, whereas Smith doesn't. Right. Milan's probably in between the two, I think. You know, uh, you know, speaking about anchors, I cannot, uh, you know, stop thinking about Chennai Super Kings who feel like a team <laughs> comprising fully of anchors because the last few yeah. years as a CSK fan has been really painful. I mean, I know they they won uh, mm. a couple of years ago, but overall, you know, when you see their batting approach, the first 10 overs, it's like they're just kind of like trudging through. And then mm. like at the 12 over mark, it's suddenly like they remember it's a T20 game and then they start hitting <laughs> But yeah. I, I remember many years ago, this was like during the golden heyday of, you know, CSK's dominance. Uh, they had this player called S. Badrinath, right? Who who I think was a good player. He, 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 he is someone you would consider an anchor, but the approach was different, right? Where the top order would go great guns, but whenever there was trouble, like he would step up. He would step up to guide and he was not like a big hitter. He would keep the you know, the runs ticking, you know, he would make sure that the run rate doesn't drop. I feel that kind of anchor, we don't really see uh, much. Do you think that's like a change in approach where it's like, we don't even need a player like Badri anymore. We just need just big hitters all the time. Yeah. I think that, that having that hitter approach is ideal as opposed to that, as opposed to the anchor. Cause I, I always bring this back to the net boundary percentage and the boundary percentage in the match. It has, it, it's the key metric to decide who, who wins the match. So what, what frustrates me sometimes when I listen to commentators as well, is that they talk about oh, rotating the strikes are really good. Well, actually it's not. Dot ball avoidance is not a good thing, generally speaking. So I think with Sunrise is one thing that I was really quite surprised with them last year was that, David Warner started off with this dot ball avoidance manner, which is he takes the fear factor out of David Warner when he does that because he when he when he's attacking he's one of the best batsmen in the world in the format. But responsible Warner is not that player. And if you look at the numbers, I say most in most leagues around eighty five percent of teams win when they have 
percentage of boundaries. But if you look at the teams with the lowest percentage of dots in the match, only about 65% of teams win. So there's there's a much more of a correlation between the boundary percentage winning as opposed to dot ball avoidance. Now, out of the 15% who don't win, most of the time, it's either a last ball or last two balls win. So the match was super tight, pretty variance heavy. Or the team who had the lower boundary percentage hit a lot more sixes. So they, they hit fewer boundaries, but the ones that they hit were often worth two runs more. So again, this is all anti-anchor strategy in terms of, you, you, if you're an anchor player, you have to be a facilitator. You have to be the guy who everyone who bats around everyone and lets everyone else take the risks. So there has to be a point in that approach, a reason for why you would do that, why you would recruit that type of player. And if they're a facilitator in that, their presence in the team makes everyone else bat well and bat above their, their average ability because of that facilitator who's batting through the innings then I don't mind the concept so much. But generally speaking, I think the anchor concept and strike rotation is overrated. And I think that you look at matchups and you look at average output per ball and things like that, actually purposely, purposely hitting the ball into a gap for a single is very, very frequently a bad outcome for that ball in isolation. And sometimes that bad outcome could be as much as half a run expectation per ball. If you've got a good matchup against the bowler and you're just purposely knocking the ball into a gap for a single and you're putting the, your teammate into a bad matchup by doing so, that could be like a half a run per ball expected cost. You do that 10 times a match, that's five runs. And five runs is frequently the, the margin of difference between winning and losing the match. So strike rotation turning ones into twos a lot i think it's a little bit overrated uh, i'm not convinced about the, the merits of that strategy or the anchor strategy well you know last year we had kale rahul and then this year we had shubman gill essentially mm. saying strike grades are overrated what are your thoughts on that <laughs> yeah i saw that uh, or t20s <laughs> yeah i mean do you think they actually genuinely believe that i I don't know. I mean, I mean it's hard you know, to gauge from press conferences what they believe, right? Because it's all very banal and very sanitized for the media. So I don't know what they mean as well, because it's also taken out of context sometimes. But yeah, I think what they mean is that, you know, anchoring is important and strike rates, you know, talking about this all the time is not good. But I don't know if they believe that. I mean, I mean, uh, it's a genuine problem with classical batsmen that they overvalue preserving the wicket because they've learned first class wicket first, right? So yes. that's what you anchor to, that you have to preserve your wicket first and then hit. Whereas for T20, I think you need to unlearn that mentality. Yeah. And if you're a classical top order batsman in India, you can't unlearn it because you can't play without that mentality, you know? And yeah. so I think and, that's an I, issue. Yeah. Sorry, man. And Himanish, I think that sort of leads pretty well into what was going to be my next question, which was, you know, I, I feel that England in particular rely a lot on data. And I, I say that because, and I mean, the English T20 side and one day side, because I was listening to Ian Morgan on one of the Sky Sports podcast, and he seemed to like know the numbers for each of his players, which was very, very interesting and um, that's great to see and I feel like other teams are catching up and I think India is slightly behind in that case and maybe that's where it's coming from where they still sort of value the fact that you know I can uh, cover up in the last five last eight whatever it might be and and that sort of mindset which is where Shubman Gill or Kale Rahul uh, are making those statements and it's also a product of in my mind, a product of the kind of players they are. Because Shubman Gill does not have the attacking game that a KL Rahul does or a Josh Butler does. 
Um, so I kind of understand when he says that and he's trying to play anchor, but when somebody like Kale Rahul, who, who's a spectacular T20 player in my mind, starts playing like that, starts thinking like that, that's a little surprising in my head. Yeah, I, it's an interesting concept, I think, because you look at, say, like the players, even early 20-year-olds playing professional T20, right? They probably grew up when T20 was in its infancy in terms of format, like it either just started or it was the first few years when you know a lot of the test match players got picked in the IPL and stuff like that. And they probably grew up, you know, if they're Indian, they grew up idolising, you know, a Tendulkar or a Dravid. When if they're English, they probably grew up idolising Alistair Cook or someone like that, you know. So they wanted to be that. But then as the format evolves. I think people are going to want to grow up and they're going to want to be Hardik Pandya or Joss Butler or someone like that instead. So they want to, there's going to be that shift. And I, I am reading a book at the moment called The Goldmine Effect by Rasmus Ankersen. And he talks about, he's actually a director of football at Brentford FC who are on the verge of almost getting promoted to the Premier League. And they're a very analytics-driven driven team in, in football. Now, he talks about groupings of players coming through from certain areas at certain times so I think I think the numbers I'm pretty sure are broadly correct about 190 out of the top 500 women's golfers are from South Korea and there are other clustered areas as well around the world in different sports where there's extreme areas of high performance in in an isolated small area and I think that that, that that's can be the case in cricket as well so for example in England, English players who are now playing T20, you know, guys like Jason Roy or Alex Hales or Joss Butler, the attacking players, they probably grew up watching Kevin Peterson as opposed to Jeffrey Boycott. And, and, and the whole premise of this book is that they, the, when, when you're trying to break into a sport or you're learning when you're younger, you look at people and you think, if they can do it, I can do it as well. And because it's relatable, because it's someone from your country or something like that. So I think in the future, we're going to see people want, because now obviously we've got players like with, you know, high charisma, high strike rates in T20 in India, like Hardik Pandya, Ishan Kishan, Rishabh Pan, players like that. The next generation of, of children are one are going to want to grow up to emulate them. They're going to see them on the TV and they think, if they can do it, I want to do it too. And they're going to, eventually we're going to have this complete shift in mentality from that classical test match batsman that's trying to play T20 still. Uh, perhaps they, you know, they're still, they don't, they're not really a six hitter or anything like that. They still overvalue their wicket. The wicket preservation is too high. And then we're going to see a, a, an array of players who are just complete hitters because they've grown up watching these, you know, and other players around the world, like Andre Russell or Pollard or Chris Gale or anyone like that, you know, they're going to they're gonna say, oh, well, if they can do it, I want to do that too. And they're going to try and emulate those players. So, yeah, it's, and, and, and I think with that clustering effect, you kind of see that a bit in the West Indies with their, with their, their players as well, you know, Chris Gale, Evan Lewis, Nicholas Poran, Pollard. Fabian Allen, they're all the same. They all they all have Sunil Narayan. They'll have quite low non-boundary strike rates, so they're, they're not they don't put a lot of value on rotating the strike, but they put a lot of value on boundary hitting. They all hit over twenty percent of boundaries, which is considerably above average. So there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of similarities in that area, and I think that we're going to see a lot more. Do you uh, do you see a lot more teams these days taking analytics seriously and? Because, you know, you kind of mentioned it how, because I just remembered RCB of 2009, I believe, where they had Dravid, 
Callis Chanderpaul. And then yeah. from there, we have come to the era where it's Coley, De Villiers, and Maxwell inside. Um, but do you see a lot, a lot of teams across in the globe, especially, uh, and in your capacity, you know, working uh, at the Blast, do you see teams mm. are taking that more seriously as far as using data analytics? Some do, some don't. So um, every team in the Blast, for example, will have at least one analyst. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an analyst who has particular input in strategy or anything like that. So the basic uh, job of a, a county analyst, which every county has to do, is that they have to code them. So they have to, on a computer, they will put like where the ball pitched, where what shot the batsman played, what movement there was, the result of the ball. They've got to code every ball. And it's an obligation for the home team to, to code them out in English. Now, that is not going to help any, any team strategize for that individual match at that point in time when there's someone's just sitting on a computer doing that, right? There's, there's, there's a big difference between being an analyst and doing that and being an analyst and affecting strategy and working on recruitment, things like that. Now, yeah. as far as I know, I might be wrong, but as, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only person working for a county who's specifically focusing largely on recruitment as opposed to like the day-to-day analyst role so there's there's quite a big difference in that and I think that that's where the growth area of English cricket has to go in, in a T20 blast and I don't know if that's the same as the IPL I think it probably is to some extent I mean I, I still think that you know the owners and the captains the big names get too much say in auctions whereas it really should be down to the recruitment specialists as opposed to you know, the, the, those, right. those you know, bigger names. Um, yeah, so so with regards to strategy as well, I'm not sure a lot of analysts really have a massive input in strategy in English cricket. So I think there's a lot of areas where the game can really grow in that area. And I think that, that a lot of English counties, they don't spend enough on having a good analytics department and they don't let their analysts have as much input as they probably should have or could have. Um, a classical argument that I often make is that in English cricket, there's no salary caps in terms of not some, not like a level budget, like what what they're doing for and franchise T20. So I work for Leicestershire. We'll have one of the lowest budgets in the country. And so someone like Surrey or Yorkshire or whoever will have a much higher budget than... But I make the classical argument that every team has got at least one player, if not multiple players, who are not good enough for that team or will play less than 5% of the matches. And in the matches they play, they will have negligible output. They won't be a match winner or anything like that. And you could cut those guys off your squad and invest that money in analytics, and that would have more of an impact in terms of points per game gain as opposed to keeping those fringe players in your squad. And I think that that, but I think that the counties kind of, they don't like that approach because it goes, challenges conventional wisdom. It, it's, right. it's, it's a bit of a disruptor's tactic, if you like. Uh, and I think there's a lot of areas that they can really benefit from and, and change that mentality in the future. Do I think they're going to do it? Probably, but do I think it could take 10 years or more? Probably as well. Well, what could change that, though, is what we are seeing uh, a rising trend in a lot of amateur analysts who are popping up online. You yeah. know, uh, I mean, this is at the top of my mind. I can see you know, how passionate you are about this. And I know him and Isha yeah. as well. But there are so many equally talented cricket fans out there who uh, who do this with a passion, uh, just breaking down the game, uh, using numbers and analytics online. Uh, do you have any advice for them, if any, 
just about, you know, because I feel like it's inevitable that most teams will eventually kind of start placing more of an emphasis on this. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts or advice uh, for uh, all these fans? It's, it's, I'm not joking here. I mean, I'm going to be really honest here and say that it's probably the journey from becoming, from being like a blogger or something like that to actually getting work for teams is probably the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. I'm I'm not exaggerating. It is extremely difficult. I can I can remember days when I was that close to just saying I can't do this anymore because you were just getting nowhere and it was just cost taking too much of your time and costing you kind of expected earnings in other areas if you like because you were throwing so much time at it and you were getting nowhere from it. I can remember the days when I would send fifty or a hundred emails or LinkedIn messages trying to market myself uh, um, to whoever I could possibly get contact details for, be it owners or or um, head coaches or directors of cricket or players or, or whatever. And I, w- I would say that you would be lucky to get a reply 5% of the time and the 5% almost certainly be thanks. And, and that's that to be honest with you it's pretty depressing when you see that when you get that a lot and you know people people often say that life's number a numbers game and if you if you buy enough tickets you win the raffle Mm. but actually it didn't really manifest itself like that uh, in 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 cricket um i would say that i've had to be extremely persistent and patient to to get to that stage um and i said i was close to not bothering after a, a long time as well um but I think having an online presence really, really helps. And particularly in, in English cricket, I, I guess this may be an area where English cricketers are a little bit different than Indian cricketers, is that a lot of English cricketers will follow you if they think you're doing producing good content. So, for example, if you look at my Twitter follows, you'll find that a lot of English cricketers do follow me. So that helps as well. I think that the, the players are quite willing to in, engage it. And I've actually had quite a few players come to me privately and ask me for detailed analysis on them or a report on them because they want to learn more about their strengths and weaknesses and to kind of especially the guys who are like I would say they're probably not that far away from playing franchise cricket and perhaps they're a bit frustrated that they could they that they haven't got those opportunities yet they're good examples of players who might come to you and say look can you profile me because this is I'm, I feel like I'm close, but I'm just not getting there and I really want to get there because it's a big ambition of theirs. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I think if, if you want advice for an aspiring analyst, um, you've got to have patience. You've got to have a thick skin. You've got to have an online presence. You've got to put a lot of work in, a lot of time into devise content, often for free, to get somewhere. And I think a lot of the time you could probably say that your skills will be better remunerated in other industries. But obviously, right. this is a goal to work with professional sports players, professional coaches, professional teams is often, you know, it's a dream for a lot of people. So I guess that's what kind of keeps people going in that, in that dream. Like I said, I had to be pretty persistent, pretty patient. Be, be really honest, there's probably some dark days involved with that. Or what's the point? Uh, so you, I think they've got to be prepared for that. I think, uh, it probably sounds a bit negative and a bit brutal. I don't mean it to be, but... I, I, I don't want people to go in, to try and go into the industry with naivety, if you like. They've got to they've got to go in with their eyes open to what they're probably going to have. But by the same token, you know, the next five years could be a big growth industry in analytics and, and teams hiring a lot more and taking a lot of chances on people. They started to see that in football a lot more. In English football, we see that a lot. So I, I think about fifteen 
bloggers have been hired recently by English county English football teams doing doing to do recruitment or analysis work. And I think there's even a guy Ashwin Raman who's from Bangalore who's been hired by Dundee United in Scotland to do an analysis work for them. So the, in football, the bloggers have got a huge reach now. If you're putting out good content, you will get hired. But I, and I think maybe in cricket in the next few years that could be the case. So if you're getting into it now, maybe you might not have to go through quite the long process that I had. To to go through and it might be a bit quicker but i think it really will need uh, the analytics industry to kind of pick up a little bit more and for more teams to add a little bit more weight to it and take chances with it a little bit more as well for that one thing you said just a little uh, bit ago gives me hope is that you have players reaching out to you players who have a lot of coaches at their disposal yeah. but they want more you know mm-hmm. these are the players who want to improve they want to understand their game better they want to see yeah you know how can they make a bigger impact you know uh, in their yeah. career and if you see that and if you see more players coming up uh, who are willing you know who are willing to learn from just beyond their traditional coaching staff or whatever and i think yeah. so there's so much place for analytics and you never know you know for all the budding uh, analysts who want to work for you know big teams i think uh, just got to keep that in mind you know there are there's always scope there's always there are always players and teams who want just that little extra edge and that's 100%. where things could really change in the coming years yeah i'll give you a good example of that as well so last month i won't name the player for obvious reasons but um a uh, a uh, player who has played for england came to me and said can you tell me what my death strike rate is in the last three and can you tell me what is good as a death strike rate and mm. it kind of blew my mind that the player didn't actually get this information because i said to him does your county coach not give you this information and he said no he said that we don't have access to it and i thought that's incredible and that i think goes to show you how far analytics does have to go in at least in english cricket at least as a good example of that um mm. to to really help players maximize their ability and their their potential i think yeah. it's also about the data not being in the public domain so mm. most players will usually go to cricket info and look it up but these these sorts of numbers right which include context are not there in the public domain and i hope in the next 5 to 10 years they will be there because there's something which sorely lacks in cricket right and it sort of you know deflates the quality of conversation as well and i hope that more yeah. yeah i do too as as you guys say that i think baseball is something where you know they have a lot more uh numbers that they're capturing and I, again I, like i'm not a baseball uh, expert so I, i don't know all the details around it but i generally feel that they you know even from rotations on the ball like they they capture a lot more detail um in that sport and i think that's where cricket is going to tend to maybe hopefully in the 10 year uh time frame uh, if it's sooner that's even better but i think we might be optimistic if we're hoping yeah. for sooner no, i agree with you completely i think that 10 to 15 years is probably going to be about the, the realistic life and i think yeah that's a, that's a good ballpark ballpark time then um you mentioned about how there is no clearly defined path right like from being like data savvy to you know putting out content regularly and to eventually landing a job with you know uh, a club or a team do you think that gap will be shrunk as more and more analysts you know get employed by different clubs and you know there are there's more like you know programs where people can enroll to educate themselves uh in order to be more um job ready so yeah i think it's a simple question of supply and demand so at the moment i think 
supply is probably at an average level but demand is low and so therefore there's that difficulty getting the jobs because people are still a bit skeptical about it a lot of maybe old school conventional coaches who are you know they grew up grew up not having this or they still don't even know how to use whatsapp or something like that they're, they're, they're gonna feel like they're threatened by by someone who's going to come in who probably hasn't played the game to any decent level challenging someone who's got 50 plus caps for their country that, that actually what they've learned over the last 30 years is wrong and I think that, that that's a big problem in terms of that perception and that's why I think demand is quite low at the moment and I also think I, I do think that as more analytics driven teams do well it's going to become a natural consequence that that it's teams will have to catch up and I also think that this should be I think it's something that we've spoken about a little bit in um, and before is those implications of, of failure and the rewards for success you know if some if if you if you, the winner of the IPL the owner got 50 million pounds or something like that, or 50 million dollars immediately there's like that that incentive to improve your processes to be more meritocratic but at the moment or if there's conversely you would say if there's relegation so if you if you had a two-tier IPL with eight teams in division one and eight teams in division two and you got relegated from division one to division two imagine if like CSK got relegated right there'll be a complete intolerance for failure and they would have to they would be doing that overhaul quicker because or the coach would get fired or whatever because because there's implications for that but at the moment in t20 leagues you can just shrug your shoulders and say okay well we'll just try again next year because because there's 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 no implications or anything like that so i think all these things have to change champions league would be really good as well with fair distributions of overseas players i think would be would be fantastic with big prize money stuff like that and i think all this kind of is all interlinked in that way of being able to get more people who are good at analytics into cricket because at the moment, I think a lot of teams, unless they're very, very driven, the owner's got a lot of pride and, and will delegate responsibility to a lot of other people. There, there's not enough incentive for teams to actually want to do well. And I think that that has to change in T20 franchise leagues. And it doesn't, I'm not just specifically talking about the IPL here. I'm talking about leagues around the world. It's all the same. There's, if, you, if you're bad, there's nothing bad's going to happen to you. You just go again. Whereas in football, for example, if you're bad, there's massive consequences. You lose like 50 million pounds in a TV deal or something like that. If you get relegated from the Premier League, there's massive consequences. And and yeah. you also see a lot of teams at the top of the division, towards the top of the division below, take a lot of chances because they know they're going to get this massive TV money if they get promoted. So it's complete difference in consequences. And I think that that will change. That has to, has to change a little bit as well. Um, in the future, I think it will probably change as the format evolves and, and these clearly data-driven teams will do so well compared to everyone else. And there's going to, it will change, but we have to have the demand rise to, to meet the supply levels for everyone to start getting a lot more jobs. But the problem is, is, obviously, if everyone's doing a lot more courses and they're learning it off their own back before they get jobs, then the supply is going to rise too. So it might, might just be a bit of a catch-22 situation where the demand will rise but the the supply will also rise at the same time so it'll still be quite a frustrating process but I said what I've seen I said a little bit earlier what I've seen in English football is quite encouraging that now a lot of blockers are getting hired to work with teams and it's really in the last six months it's really exploded so hopefully cricket's not too far behind I think a comparison with football is um, warranted because there's a lot of footage available in football right and a lot of these analysts also watch a lot of these highlights and analyze that. So what is the relative importance of 
video versus numbers right because i can't watch a lot of cricket because of time zones yes. i rely more on numbers so i feel like cricket is still in that stage where video has more information than numbers because numbers don't exactly capture everything what do you think yeah. about that well i'm in a similar position to you and for me watching a lot of video is probably a time inefficient way of 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 using my um right. i think the beauty of of data is that it can capture data from every single match around the world without you actually having to physically watch the match so you know there, there might be nine t20 blast matches all played at the same time on a saturday night or something like that but you can only watch one of them on sky sports because they'll just pick one and that's the one you can watch and you'll be able to watch county streams but of course you can't watch nine matches at the same time on the stream um but your data will, will enable you to capture everything every ball by ball for every single match so there's a big difference between between the efficiency of that now now my my mentality is is that the data side of it has to be the foundation the bedrock of 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 your decision making process and then you can do things like look at videos afterwards but unless a player has got good data you use your data filters to start as a starting point to get a, a short list of players who you think might be appropriate for a given role and then you can plow through the video afterwards so you're making it a much more of a time efficient process so i i mean i might be wrong here and maybe you guys might know a little bit more about this the ipl scouting process than, than i do um but I would say if you're looking at say like Syed Mushtaq Ali trophy matches right there's a lot of matches all played at the same time right so unless you've got 20 scouts you can't watch all the matches if you're, if you're an IPL franchise right so what I would do in advance of Syed Mushtaq Ali trophy is to provide create a short list of I don't know 20 30 players that you want to watch multiple times throughout that tournament and then you can focus your scouting in a more time-efficient, uh, resource-efficient way by looking at those pre-identified players. And if there's like a, a random player who, in the first four or five games, like sets the world on fire, then you could then you can go and have a look at him as well right. afterwards. But but it's all for me. It's all about being time-efficient and resource-efficient. And if you've if you if you you shouldn't be sending a scout to watch a random match for no particular purpose. It's got to have a purpose. And, and identifying those players in advance, I think, is critical for that. And you can only do that via data. So, so for me, like what what I would do in terms of my recruitment, a lot of the time, I will create a short list of players from data, and then we might source video to then look at technical flaws or or, or positive attributes from the video subsequently. And, and I think that that that's probably a good way of doing things. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, Dan, uh, I want to end by asking you about your book uh, that you've written, yeah. Strate Strategies for Success in the Indian Premier League. Mm -hmm. And considering the fact that we're uh, at the start of another uh, potentially exciting season, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book and you know where uh, can we purchase it? Yeah, sure. So um, you can purchase it via my website, which is www.sportsanalyticsadvantage.com. There's a link on the main main page of that that you can purchase it for. Um, it was so I've been planning to do it for probably about two years before I wrote it, but I was kind of toying with the title. Originally, I was going to call it something like How to Win a T20, but then I decided I wanted to have specific focus on the IPL because I was I, I almost being really honest with you, I almost did it as a reason as to try and ex increase my exposure to IPL decision makers in terms of a bit of a, a job job push as well. Didn't really work out that way, but that was kind of 
some rationale behind focusing specifically on the IPL. And obviously it's the biggest league in the world, so it has that extra reach as well. Um, and then obviously COVID kind of affected everyone, everyone's lives in March last year, pretty much. And so I used it as a bit of a lockdown project, if you like, to actually get it, get it written. Um, now it's, it's about 170 pages of, of data-driven analysis and charts I cover a lot of different areas. So I, I talk about the relationship between boundary hitting and success that we've kind of touched on a little bit earlier in this podcast. I, I talk about how difficult it is for batters to hit over 140 strike rate unless they have at least an average boundary percentage and that relationship between boundary hitting and strike rate is critical. Um, I do a lot of analysis or do some analysis on matchups, do a lot of venue analysis, team analysis, player analysis. And I just think from, from, from my perspective, I want to... I, I, I wanted to be a very data-driven book, but I didn't want it to be too technical. I didn't want it to read like a university dissertation or something like that, that you know, right. your eyes might glaze over when you read it. So I wanted it to try and pitch it to, to one, demonstrate my knowledge on the subject, hopefully, but also two, to appeal to the casual fan as well, that they would be able to pick it up and it would increase their, their knowledge of both the IPL and T20 cricket in general. But there's, I think there's about 20 odd chapters in the book and, and, and I cover a lot of the stuff I've covered is kind of stuff I've touched on in social media threads or um, articles on the websites and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it's a lot of it's my own, own views on T20, but with data-driven evidence-based rationale right. behind it as well. So yeah, if you're a cricket fan, I definitely recommend checking it out anyway. What I'm going to do, Dan, is I'm going to buy two copies, send okay. one to Mike Hessen, the other one to Virat Kohli, and hope for the best. If you've got, your, if you've got their contact details, then that would be really good. <laughs> so that's the plan. But Dan, thank you so much for your time and your insights. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, on behalf of uh, a few CSK fans here on the podcast, I wish all the best of luck to the team that you had to draw up, which was RCB. And uh, <laughs> look forward to getting more insights from you as the tournament progresses. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to join you guys. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. A special thanks to Dan for joining us to talk analytics. You can find Dan on Twitter at SAAdvantage and his website at sportsanalyticsadvantage.com. Meanwhile, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds. And do leave us a voice message if you would like to be featured on the show. Once again, thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for more. From all of us here at The Last Wicket, have a great week.